Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of July 2023. We are wrapping up a month here in Sitka that was drier than normal. Even the rain we did have fell mostly over a 24-hour period, spread over two days. And so it has been a month with plenty of sunshine, some clouds to break up the sun a little bit, but warm temperatures and pleasant weather overall. At least that was my experience of it. It is trending towards fall season, but we still do have some bird nesting going on. I found a couple of nests since the last time I was on the show. Uh, One in particular was the first nesting record of gray catbirds. Somebody was out and about over by the Mount Edgecombe classroom building there. There's a slope of salmon berries that is um, good for birds. Lots of birds like to use the salmon berries there, getting insects and berries. And noticed some catbirds and posted those on the Sitka Birds Facebook group. I was able to go there, and given their behavior, I expected it sounded it seemed like they were nesting. And in fact, I was able to find their nest and get a little peek at it. So that is the first nesting record for Alaska of this unusual for here species, more typically expected uh, no further north than southern BC. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded early in July with Derek Sykes. He is a professor of entomology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and curator of the insect collection at the Museum of the North. He was in Sitka to run a bug camp through the Sitka Sound Science Center. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with him describing just what a bug camp is. Yeah, it's like a crash course immersion into the world of entomology. Um, and they're, they're both children-oriented and adult-oriented bug camps. The basic idea, yeah, I really emphasize the collecting side. Um, and I think that's a great way to get to know uh, the biodiversity of insects uh, is a hands-on um, capture. And, and, what, and there's a lot of reasons for this, but capture collect, prepare, and and then have kind of the ownership and, and uh, uh, reward of building a, um, a collection that that opens the doors to all the other ecological information. Um, and because insects are so tiny, uh, it often allows you to, to uh, see them far better than you could in the field, um, unless you're skilled with um, certain cameras, like I know you are, that have great macro ability. Um, but getting those specimens um, uh, motionless and preserved for science uh, allows you to really examine them in great detail and, and learn a lot more about them. So I teach this, and I think it's important. The um, There's been a... I know when I was growing up, there was a, a movement called... Uh, uh, take only pictures and leave only footprints approach to nature. Um, and I think this had a bit of a negative impact on the collecting world. Um, children used to love to make insect collections for, uh, you know, the Boy Scouts and stuff. In fact, I think the Boy Scouts used to have a merit badge for an insect collection, which they no longer do, right? Like it's some, some people begin to think this is like an antiquated part of science and it really isn't. Um, and I love uh, teaching kids about that. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing because a lot of, you know, birding is very popular in terms of natural history related hobbies. And in the old days, before birding was kind of a thing, you were an ornithologist and you carried a shotgun. Right. And that was just it. And 
they've discovered with birds in particular, birds are much larger than, than your typical insect. And they, many of them are identifiable in the field. And these days, I think in bird world, collections are less emphasized and photography and sound recordings uh, both are pretty important. But I know that the museum still has collections, has study skins, has all these things which are useful for genetic work and, mm. and these sorts of things. And I don't know how much actual like shotgun sort of collecting that's going on, but I know I've sent quite a number of birds that were window strikes mm -hmm. or, you know, cat kills or, or mm -hmm. any number of reasons I might have found a, a dead bird that was still generally intact and put it in the bag in a freezer with a little note about when and where. And, mm -hmm. and then every so often they go up to the university and I don't you know, extend their life at some in some fashion as yeah. as a as a study study um, exam, uh, uh, example specimen. Right, and one of the things you can do with a dead bird that you can't do with a photograph is is get the uh, mites and mm -hmm. the lice and uh, other ectoparasites off of it, um, which. I don't think our museum is currently doing much of that, but I know some people do a lot of that. Um, there's a huge diversity of mites that live on birds. There's even mites that live in the bills of hummingbirds. And they, they don't actually feed on the bird in any way. They just use the bird as, as a uh, transportation to get from flower to flower. Now, I don't, don't quote me on whether those occur in North America, but I, am, I know very well they occur in South America because that's where I learned about them. Um, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to, I'm like, how do you discover that? Because <laughs> presumably they don't really stick around much if the bird dies, but maybe maybe they don't have any place to go if they're not at a flower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, do you ever get, uh, you know, I know the Raptor Center has mites and, and fleas and stuff coming off. I don't know if they have fleas on birds, but, but certainly mites coming off of birds. Do you end up getting collections from them? Yeah, from in fact, the, one of the first ones that came into the museum since I started working there was from a injured bald eagle that um, had been injured up near Toke and brought to a raptor center in Anchorage, which I don't know if it's still there or not. I kind of heard something about it might not be there. But the the bald eagle had lice on it, and they contacted me and said, do I want the lice? I'm like, sure. And they sent up the lice, and these were the biggest lice I'd ever seen. I mean, they were upwards. I think some of them were approaching a full centimeter in length. Um, and uh, and then I sent them to a louse expert who got them identified. Lo and behold, that species had never been reported from Alaska before. You know, despite it being, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not host specific to, to eagles. It's on a few other birds. Um, but, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised that something on such a iconic bird had not been documented before. And then we went and DNA barcoded. So we, and turned out that was also, that was the first genetic sequence of that louse species in our genetic databases came from this bald eagle that had been injured. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like it's a little easier when you, when you <laughs> have the birds in hand, I suppose you could dig around in nests and look for, look for uh, the arthropods that have fallen off. Or I guess there's some that probably specialize in living in nests. Mm -hmm. It seems like the arthropods, mites and Mites in particular, but also various insects. There's bird blowflies. Bird that, blowflies. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole well, the blowflies that specialize on on carcasses. There's a whole subcategory of those that um, are parasites on birds. They lay their eggs in bird nests. The larvae um, feed on the nestlings, uh, like you know bloodsuckers. And uh, <laughs> I, one of my first projects was going through a whole bunch of bird nests, um, working with an ornithologist, ecologist uh, up in Fairbanks, 
looking for the bird blowflies, which left behind their puparia because we had these preserved nests. And when the, the blowfly larva molts to an adult, it become it leaves the puparia behind, which is identifiable. Um, and so we were pulling out all these puparia from all these nests and a uh, whole bunch of new records for Alaska. You know, no one had documented those before. Wow. So those, yeah, I mean, it makes me curious because... It's a pretty limited window where birds are nesting, but I guess I guess that's many many species have a, a a stage. Well, especially in Alaska, I suppose, where they have to go into some form of suspension. Um, I don't know if it's hibernation in insects exactly, or whatever it is, where they they're just not doing anything for mm-hmm. a while until mm-hmm. things pick up again. Yep, yep, yeah. So I suppose. Is that well? Is that one of the things that that you have looked at, or other people have looked at, the kind of the through the year life cycle? Because a lot of times we find these adults flying around. You're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what are they doing the rest of the year? Or you find the larvae in the like. Well, the other day we were looking on a, a, a seepy rock wall here around town, and and there's little caddisfly larvae. But you were poking around and finding cranefly larvae and all of these mm-hmm. other probably midge larvae. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, okay, well, so you find them here, but what do they look like as adults? And, right. You know, when do they come out? And this whole life cycle thing seems like it could be a little bit challenging to track down. It is. It is. Um, it takes a lot of time and patience and luck. Um, and you, you sometimes, um, it, you know, it, I remember Ken Phillip, the butterfly collector, he, he loved butterflies, but he didn't like the larvae <laughs> very much. He He would encourage people to rear the larvae to adult and send them the adult butterflies rather than send them the larvae. Um, I, I disagree with that approach. I think it's great to have all the life cycles preserved, the life stages rather. Um, and in with butterflies, sometimes it's the larva that is overwintering. Um, that's actually often the case. Uh, sometimes it's the cocoon or chrysalis that's overwintering. There's a few species uh, that it's the adult uh, that overwinters. So we see this in all... It, Every life stage of the insect, um, there's a potential for that being the overwintering life stage. Egg, you know, immature, larva, pupa, adult. Not all insects have a pupal stage, but um, yeah, the, it's, a, it's a great um, way to fully understand the organism. Um, and also, we often think of the niche of a species as, you know, we think about the niche of a bird species, for example, what, you know, the, the abiotic temperature and humidity, moisture characteristics that define its, its suitable and preferred living area and all of the biological interactions that it needs to survive as well. And feed, you know, it needs to feed on a, have a certain amount of, of insect food, for example, if it's an insectivorous bird. But when it comes to insects that have this complete metamorphosis, it's like they have two niches. Right, one species with two niches because the larva might be um, like some hoverflies, for example. It's a predatory larva that feeds on aphids and crawls around and loves to eat aphids. Then it molts to an adult and it becomes a pollinating adult nectar feeding adult. <laughs> so it's a totally different niche. And we see this in a lot of insects. Um, so the number of niches is much bigger than the number of species. Is it sometimes a puzzle to, I know in talking to folks that are looking at like jellyfish, for example, like they don't always know. They they see the the um, the form of the jellyfish that we recognize, mm-hmm. and and then there's the medusa. That's the medusa form, I guess. There's the polyp form, right. 
if I'm remembering the terminology correctly, and they don't actually know what those even look like or where to find them. I don't, it, it seems like maybe it's a little easier with insects, but are, are there examples where you're like, okay, we see these adults, but we have no idea what they're doing. Exactly. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the taxonomy, which is the, the keys we use to identify are based on only one of the life stages, mm. maybe oftentimes based only on the adults, but there are some aquatic organisms like the midges, the uh, chironomids that um, the people who identify those have focused and built their keys around the larva, particularly the larval head capsule, which is, which is one of the reasons they do that is when the larva molts to the pupil stage, it leaves behind its exoskeleton. And that, um, can be acute, that can be, um, collected off the surface of a water body by just scooping them up. Uh, the wind blows them all to the one edge and you scoop up all these exoskeletons that are floating there. So you get a great inventory without killing any of the individuals because these are shed exoskeletons. And the head capsule is particularly robust um, and full of characters. And so they wrote their keys around the head capsule of the larva. You, you, you know, I talked to a chironomid expert and I, have, and I show him, I have all these chironomids in the museum. Could you identify them? And, and he said, oh, those are all adults. I'm not, I don't even look at adults. <laughs> I suppose these days with genetics, you can start to make those links if you have both. Right. Yeah. They that's becoming more and more common. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. if they haven't done any of the sort of the morphological work, I guess to even begin to describe them. Right. Then that makes it a little yes. challenging. We do sometimes end up with getting genetic sequences to organisms that have not been keyed out or even described yet. So we we've got this in the database somewhere. This DNA sequence that belongs to species X of this one taxon that we no one knows how to identify any stage in that taxon. And so it's like maybe there's some scattered records in the literature. It's just there's so much taxonomy left to be done of people not just describing new species but cleaning up all the old ones and mm-hmm. creating a useful document that people can use to identify what we have. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that, you know, there's an interesting sort of convergence of things happening the ubiquity of cameras and, and pretty decent macro capability in a lot of phones these days and certainly, you know, standalone point and shoot cameras that do exceptional with macro stuff so you can take pictures of small things. And more generally natural history people are taking pictures of plants and all of these things. So you you get just this massive amount of, of data and it's a mixed bag in terms of identification and stuff. Um, as, as is the case in museum collections as well, you mm-hmm. know, that it's, uh, you know, just because somebody put a name on it doesn't mean that they knew what they were doing. Exactly. <laughs> as exactly. it turns out. Right. Um, but you have all this, and then you also have the genetic side, which is not, it, it's becoming more accessible because you can do the, the little bar, life scanner kind of things. Right. And, and right. it's not that expensive to, to get some of that done. Um, but it's very much, you know, uh, a, a different sort of thing than than just taking a picture and seeing seeing what things look like. But you you have all this data to work with, and then of course the the records from the last, you know, I don't know what are some of the oldest records in the in the museum that you you all have. Our oldest specimens are eighteen ninety. They're butterflies that were collected in Greenland. Oh wow! Um, I don't. I think our oldest Alaskan specimen is from the Harriman expedition. We have one of those that may have originally belonged to the Smithsonian because all that stuff went there, but um, this one specimen was in the collection when I arrived, and um, it was a click beetle, and uh, the Harriman Expedition, you know, 1899, I think, um, and 
a lot of good scientists and they and they followed through you know they they got the material into the hands of the experts who then went and published on it very quickly and described tons of new species including the bristletail that is on the beaches here mm. the, or the rocks on the back of the beaches here yeah 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 well and i remember you giving a talk here one, maybe one of the first talks you you gave here in sitka and you were looking at, I think you hadn't been at the museum that long at that point. One of the big projects was, was like, oh, let's just get our first checklist, you know, yeah. like a, as comprehensive as we can get a checklist. And you had the sort of uh, known species over time graph, I think. And there was a big jump there at the Harriman ex- or, or yeah. post-Harriman expedition where there was all this work that had been done. And then sort of gradual. And I think there might have been a couple other punctuated. There was uh, a big jump in about 1945-ish in the mid, like 40s into the 50s. There was also, uh, that's when things really picked up. Since the 1940s, the Alaskan non-marine arthropod list has gained about 1,000 species per decade. Mm, Pretty steadily? Yeah, pretty steadily. Yeah. yeah. Well, which is, it's kind of interesting. You know, I think about that for myself, just observing species here. Is and and some others of us who are hobbyists, hobbyists, you know, iNaturalist type folks that like to see how many species we can get, both for ourselves and then also for our, our region, for the state, and and you know, there's a certain amount of assumption. Well, we'll start to you know see that F's curve thing trail yeah. off, and wow. there's some assumptions like in the long run, yes, but there's some assumptions sort of baked into that that aren't really met because Alaska is so huge yeah. and so little covered. It's like you'll cover a pocket and you'll start to exhaust that one. But there's this other, it's like if we put it in gold mining terms, you know, there's this other little load over, over oh. here that's, you know, going to have a complete, maybe it's a new habitat. Maybe now you start looking in caves mm-hmm. or you start looking, you know, in a, in a place that wasn't glaciated mm-hmm. and, and you get all this diversity that, or it's another group that you didn't happen to have a specialist that knew where to look because, and I don't know, we were talking about this the other day when, um, that, that there are people that know how to find things, mm-hmm. you know, they've learned that group and right. they don't come to the easy sort of like, okay, we're just going to set up a light and whatever mm-hmm. comes or set a pitfall trap and you can catch a lot of stuff that way, but there's a lot of stuff that you're going to miss. Right. And so finding another way to find the things right. uh, opens up this other realm of diversity. Exactly. That sort of generalist, um, collector versus the specialist exactly get it and i like going out with specialists because they have a different set of eyes right they they know oh that microhabitat this microhabitat and this method you know is the way to find these things um and it's it really adds to your repertoire of ability to as a general i'm more of a generalist um the only thing i would call myself a specialist on now is carrion beetle trapping but that's uh, kind of limited diversity <laughs> yeah don't have very many species in that group um yeah, I guess, you know, specialized techniques, including gently brushing liverworts. And yep, yeah. <laughs> that, that sort of a thing. Yeah. It's kind of kind of funny to think about. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, it seems like there's a lot of room for people to, uh, to find stuff that is previously not reported. Exactly. Uh, from Alaska. Yeah, that, that sort of asymptote over hitting that plateau of, of discovery happened pretty early with the, um, you know, birds and mammals. And a little bit later with the plants, um, but it's always kind of creeping up. And you 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 mentioned assumptions. Um, when uh, before I came to Alaska, uh, back when I was living on the East Coast, I was doing a, a checklist of Rhode Island beetles, kind of as a side project to my dissertation work. And it, I was comparing the list from 1990s that I was making um, and early 2000s to one that had been published 100 years earlier. And the the realization I had w- was 
rather profound realization was that the fauna has been slowly changing through that time. There are species 100 years later that weren't there or maybe weren't very common 100 years before and vice versa. It's, it's, not a, a, it's not a fixed thing. And if it takes you 100 years to document it, by the time you're done, it's going to be a different thing than when you started. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it depends on how much climate change is happening, how much habitat alteration is happening. I mean, back in New England, in the early 1900s, there were um, a lot of still kind of open fieldy areas uh, in the forests had been cut down for agriculture. But most of those people, those farmers had gone west. And then all these agricultural meadowy open areas filled in with forest. Now you can find the stone walls in the middle of a forest that, you know, tells you this used to be pasture land of some kind. Um, so that change was massive. The forest is, you know, I mean, significantly like 80% forest now, 20% forest then kind of thing. Massive change. Yeah. 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 It is, it is kind of easy to forget how dynamic everything is. Uh, but things moving around and I just over the last few years when I've had a light up on my porch and I pretty much every evening and every morning go out and check and see what I might see and I shouldn't be surprised at this point and maybe I'm not anymore but initially I was kind of surprised at at things that would be really abundant one year and then and maybe two years I'd see them mm -hmm. and then I haven't seen them since right and it's kind of like oh well, I mean, they, moths can fly around pretty easily, so mm -hmm. so they're they can disperse, and if weather and and food and whatever is, is so, I guess they get a generation in, and then something happens, and whatever that is, sort of bumps them all off, and they're they're gone again. Right. Um, and I don't. I mean, that makes me curious. Like, okay, what's what's going on? Like, mm -hmm. what, was it a weather pattern that just like conducive winds to blow them out here or, mm -hmm. or assist them in getting here. And then they found conditions that were okay, but something in the winter happened or yeah. Cause you, it, it's as you're describing that they have different niches that they need. Um, there's different failure points in their life cycle, I suppose, where a place won't work. Right. You know, maybe it's the overwintering time and maybe it's just too warm here. Really? Mm -hmm. I mean, like if it's warm and humid and they can't, uh, and you know, they're susceptible to disease or something, you know, it's any number of things one could imagine could right. be going on, right? but hard to say unless you could somehow study it. Right. And, you know, and it's this detectability issue of, um, even if like, you don't want to assume that if they're not coming to your light, that they're gone from the area, right? Because they could, it could just be when they were present, they were at a population level that was two or three times higher than the normal. And now they're back down to kind of rare where, you know, you not, they're not at your light, but maybe if you did black lighting on a huge transect across a hundred mile area, you'd eventually find them. Right. So right. Um, they just kind of become undetectable temporarily. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is, that is a good point. And so, I mean, the last couple of years we had this um, black headed budworm outbreak and, uh, sounds like it wasn't like there was an even more extreme one in the fifties or something, but, um, it, it's something that is known has, has been documented to occur every couple of decades, uh, or, or thereabouts. And, you know, it's obvious. I mean, they're presumably here always right. at some low level, uh -huh. background level kind of that you're, you're not really seeing them, but when they're in outbreak mode, like all the trees turn Brown and, you know, you're walking through and you're like, what are all these little bits on the ground? And they're like, Oh, that's caterpillar for us, I guess, as we like to call it. Uh, and then and then the moths come out uh, in the late summer and early fall, and they're flying around. And I remember going up 
up a mountain where there's late snow and just seeing them just like dead on the like they they presumably got blown up there flew up, flew up there got on the snow it was too cold and mm-hmm. then they just like got yep. stuck and died which um, is a that's a cool little natural history thing is that those snow fields oh yeah yeah insects getting blown up to areas where it's too cold for them to, to escape and they end up kind of just dying and less resting on the snow there are birds that go up there and pluck them off as a food source but there's also beetles that specialize in those habitats. I had a grad student who revised the genus Phleopteris of rove beetles, who um, a lot of those species specialize on snowfields and elevation habitats. They live under rocks near the snowfields, go out oftentimes at night, although in Alaska it could be um, when the sun is still up. <laughs> and, uh, and they go over the snowfields and just... It's refrigerated food just sitting there waiting for them, um, and that's their only – that's their niche. Um, so we did raise the point that this snow fields are getting um, smaller mm-hmm. over time, climate change. Um, shrubs are moving up slope, you know, there's – and uh, so there's all these changes happening, and so we're a little worried about them. Two, two of the species that were described as new uh, in my students' work, our work uh, – haven't been seen since the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, they were they and they were in a pretty accessible area uh, in Oregon that have um, a number of collectors going there fairly regularly. And if anybody had seen one of these, they would have collected them. Um, and they're they seem to be gone now. So, um, well, at least no one's collected them. So yeah. Let's hope they're not gone. But well, I guess then it would kind of open some questions. It's like, you know. If they if they can fly, then you know, are they able to move to Further. adjacent, you know, mountain areas? Right, right. Or or not? You know, yeah. What, what's yeah, their they di- can fly. Yeah, dispersal capability. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And how do they know which direction to go? Right, yeah, right. I mean, that would be a. Yeah, I think a lot of that. I think about that with these little intertidal uh, beetles that are flightless that live in the cracks above the just above the splash. Well, in the splash zone, but above the barnacles, below the plants where there's this black um, hydropunctaria lichen. They're in the cracks and crevices, these little Agilides salpingid beetles. They they, dis- they are distributed from uh, northern California up the coasts through the Aleutians. Um, they're on the, on the Pribilofs as well, uh, and down the corrals and into northern Japan. And um, they're just found there, and they, mu- and they disperse on driftwood or drift somehow, drifting around because they don't fly. Um, and I imagine there must just be, you know, just just a very large percentage of, of them that once they get kind of washed out to sea, don't ever make it to their appropriate habitat. They just don't make it. But the few that do, boom, they establish a colony, basically. It's like their family and they, they just live there. And so, yeah, um, it, it, there's a lot of this kind of, I think of a, you know, a lands, like if you imagine a, a flat surface with some some holes in it, and you drop a whole bunch of marbles on that flat surface, and most of them are just going to skate across the surface and fall to the floor, but a couple of them are going to stick in those holes. Those are the ones that survive. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I wonder, I don't know if the genetic precision, uh, the ability to sort of tease out differences is is sufficient enough, But because it, it could make an interesting, like, okay, can we, can we trace essentially these? Because presumably some of these islands especially in the Aleutians where there's volcanic islands or whatever, they didn't have them. And then, and then it was, I mean, you'd probably think it's a single or, or a very rare sort of establishing event that right. happens when shows up. 
And so you have these genetic choke points. If it's just, it, well, presumably would need to be a couple of individuals mm-hmm. um, showing up uh, from from whatever the source population was. And then I don't know how fast their diversion, you know, there. But I don't know how feasible that would be. I'm sure it would take a lot of time and sampling to. We did to a little pre- preliminary work with those beetles um, and comparing Sitka to Aleutian samples, and mm-hmm. there were, it was, if I remember right, Sitka had pretty deep genetic, interestingly deep genetic divergences between. Um, all of our samples in Sitka, and at least one of those haplotypes, which is sort of the unique genetic sequence of the that mitochondrian uh, CO1 gene we were looking at, one of those haplotypes from Sitka we also found way out in the Aleutians, but that was the only one that we found away from Sitka. And then there's, you know, in the Aleutians, there was a mass of nearly identical haplotypes, you know, as if they're moving around um, fairly regularly out there. But this is a, what you just referred to is kind of a long distance dispersal. Probably that's a connection between Sitka and this one island out there just got lucky and drifted out and survived. Well, there's not a lot of wood in the Aleutians. How are they? There's a lot of driftwood. Is there? So, so they'll get onto the driftwood from the rocks. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then it could get washed back out again. Yeah. But if they're not, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting because when I remember going looking for them here and they were like in the cracks in the rocks and I don't know, I guess, like, are they regularly going on the wood or like, I mean, it's- I'm, I mean, I'm guessing they're getting washed off the rocks. Oh. They're kind of floating on the surface and, 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 and this would be great to have somebody do the experiments who maybe lives in Zitka who can get access to these beetles. But how long can they survive on ocean water? Um, just floating around, like you know, do they drown? Do they sink? Like, do how, do they need to get to some other floating substrate that they can get onto uh, within a certain time window? Like, all these are unknown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah and it would be, I guess, another thing, just like with these drifting ones, is, is prevailing currents would mm-hmm. presumably drive the the. It'd be much harder to go upstream. So right, you, right. you might expect to see some of that pattern in with the. Um, with the genetic, uh, you know, establishments and, and that. But, yeah, that would be a fascinating story, I think, to, to try and understand where they – because are those – are there – this species, like what's the, the range is in Alaska? Are they beyond Alaska or is it different species in other places? Or The species are unknown right now. Um, there's a, a doctoral student in Oslo, Norway, who is just about to finish – I guess she's like three-quarters through her project on this – and I've uh, been collaborating with them. But uh, <laughs> there had been, I think, in the about the 1980s, there were four species known in this genus. Then in the 1990s, a German taxonomist said, no, there's 22. <laughs> and, and, and he basically said every location that is at any distance from any other location was its own unique species that was endemic to that location. Um, like even the Pribiloffs, he named a species St. Georgensis and St. Paulensis, um, one endemic to each island known from no other place, which raised a lot of eyebrows in the taxonomy world. Like, this doesn't sound too plausible. <laughs> yeah. And so, but he was just using genitalia and old, very old school methods. And um, and so now we're we're looking at it with DNA, and um, it's a much more complex story. Um, there's more than four species, but there's probably fewer than twenty two. So. Yeah, so still still work in progress yep. with that with yep. that group. 
Well, it's, it's interesting. And I know, well, you'd mentioned to me uh, before we started recording that you've also been working lately on a project. And I remember a few years ago, you were saying, look for these Western bumblebees. Right. Like, I think they have a white white back end. Kind yep. Of, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so that one seems like it's an interesting one based on what you were telling me that that part of the search is based on this niche modeling approach where you're like, okay, we know where they live elsewhere. Where What's most like that in Alaska? So right. that's where we'll go look for them. Exactly. Exactly right. And it turns out Haines and Skagway area is the uh, most suitable place in Alaska, according to the niche model, for the western bumblebee. And the western bumblebee is of interest because it's uh, crashed. Um, its populations have, have crashed in the lower 48. Uh, and so the Fish and Wildlife Service has been re- doing what they call a species status assessment, where they get a team of modelers and scientists and bring in all kinds of experts. And I was one of the experts, and we'd do all these Zoom calls as they were presenting their sort of monthly reports and analysis. of They're preparing just a document that they pass on to another group of people who then make the judgment call of, okay, does this species warrant listing on the endangered species um, list? Uh, and so that's all ongoing right now. They're, they're, I think, you know, in the next year or so, we'll know whether it gets listed. But the folks, the feds and the, and the state agencies in Alaska are very interested to know if this species occurs in Alaska. And so that's where the niche modeling came in and, and the Haines Skagway really lit up as the, the most likely place because the, the Western bumblebee does get into about mid-latitude British Columbia. Um, and, uh, and so we've been going to Haines and Skagway. I went there earlier this year and went there last year and we've been sampling bumblebees um, just to make sure we have enough data to feel confident that uh, we didn't miss it, um, which is kind of hard. It's kind of hard to, like, prove that something doesn't exist somewhere. You know, I really find it interesting following the um, ivory-billed woodpecker story because there's people who say they, it's still there and other people saying it's totally implausible. And how do you prove that it's there? And, and then you get into all that. You know, f- folks who believe in the Sasquatch and whatnot, but it's like cryptozoologists. <laughs> exactly, yeah, there you exactly, go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so showing that something doesn't exist is a lot harder um, than showing that it does. Yeah. So, you, giving it due diligence, essentially, in terms of sampling, and and if it's there, it's prohibitively rare. Or I guess, and I suppose there's not really much reason to think with bumblebees that there's some sort of specialty way that that oh you'd suddenly discover there's bunches of them you just weren't looking in the right place kind exactly of thing. right right whereas you might do that for some other exactly organisms. right right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well that makes things interesting well and i know that here you've been seeking out these little um millipedes and that are i guess if i'm understanding correctly the the i, I met i don't know it's been probably it was, i think it was 2006 roland shelley who was a um millipede guy i don't remember how i I think he saw my pictures on bug guide or something and he Mm -hmm. was making a trip through the pacific northwest coast Mm -hmm. and i think he did ultimately find something interesting on uh haidaguay and when he came here he he came through sick he didn't find anything other than our sort of common larger millipede he didn't happen to turn anything up but he had found i i mean i I think you you said that it was in a ditch and i for some reason remember him saying something about a flower pot but um but that that may have been confusing stories of this millipede that was new Mm -hmm. uh ultimately i don't know if he described it or maybe somebody else described it. he co-authored it it with uh william shear um who's who's uh uh, still around and i've been in touch with william or bill um and yeah because roland has passed now but uh yeah roland found this cool tiny five millimeter white millipede and i 
I'm not much of a millipede um, person, but I have looked at a few, and this is hands down the cutest millipede I've ever seen because it has clubbed antennae. I mean, just I just think there's something very adorable about them. Um, uh, but they, they, yeah, they're very small. They're kind of cryptic because they're living in decaying matter out of sight or, you know, under rock, uh, rocks or logs. Um, he found them in a, in a ditch in, uh, Clingit Park in Haines. And thus when they described it as new, uh, uh they'd named it Tingupa, which is the genus, which has a number of other species, Tingupa, uh, Tlingatorum. And, uh, that was a description in 2007 and no one had found that species anywhere else. Of course, no one had been looking very hard, but um, that discovery was also exciting to him because it was the northernmost record of millipedes in North America. So it's kind of like millipede people are curious about the biogeography and how, how far north these things get because they're very, um, they're very, they love moisture, moist forests, and once you start getting north, it's getting too dry and too cold uh, for them. And, and, you know, they don't occur in the Arctic for sure. <laughs> you know, they don't even occur in, in uh, Fairbanks. Um, but they're, so Haynes is the northernmost record. And then the same genus was found on Kodiak, but um, it was a female. And they, they can only identify them as a species by the male um, genitalia, what they call the gonopods, which in this one thing from Haynes is like this, it, it look, the illustration in, in the original description, uh, I can only describe it as, as imagine if you pull up a, a plant and shake off all the dirt and just look at the roots. It, it, this gonopod looks almost like that. Like it's just this weird set of structures and appendages kind of going off in odd directions. Like I'm like, how, how do these millipedes use this to, to mate, I don't know enough about millipedes, but that that very strange structured gonopod is supposedly species specific. And um, when we luckily found some of these tingupa on Kodiak, I uh, um, got them to uh, Bill Shear, who um, said, "Oh yeah, you've got some males in here, so now we can confirm the ID." And so now we have the second location of tingupa tlingatorum. Um, the uh, but which is still yet to be found outside of Alaska, so it falls into the category of what we call an endemic or a potential endemic species to the state, a species that is globally restricted to Alaska as far as we know. Um, now there was we had Tingupa in in Sitka, which I was excited to to find. Um, I think it was in 2012 during the BioBlitz when I found a series of females, all females, so they couldn't be identified to species, um, and. Uh, but I think you had said that that another millipede specialist is pretty sure that it's the Tlingatorum. So this might be a third location for that species. Yeah, if if um, one of the things that, that my son Connor found was, I think he did put that name on it. Yeah, yeah. And then there's others that we found in that broader group, which I can't remember the name of the, the group. It's family, it might even be higher than family. I can't remember. Um, but the little white millipedes mm-hmm. and most of them are just getting to that group like nobody's going further than right, that based right. on based on the photos and i'm not right. sure why i'd have to go find the iNaturalist observation because there's a series of comments from the from the millipede person about mm. about it and he might have described said why he was willing to, to call that one or i maybe just be misremembering but 
but um, I'm pretty sure that those were. And we were, you know, finding, he, well, especially Connor was good at finding them. Just like by, when we were out for ho- hikes, he walks faster than I do often these days. And hmm. <laughs> so I think uh, to pass the time, sometimes you just turn over, turn over pieces of wood mm-hmm. uh, bark, you know, that's fallen and been there for a little while and find interesting things, including these little millipedes. Also, there's these little uh, pudgy um, springtails that mm-hmm. neoneridae, I think they are, you know, the little um, globular puppy. ones. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's the globular ones that are kind of have that same. Oh, oh I know like what you're talking about. Yeah. Pudgy ones that, yeah. that, um, have little little bits of bumps on them yep. and and yep. um, Moriulina, I think, is the genus. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. and so there's there's those, and then uh, and then also different sorts of uh, fancy looking uh, harvestmen, uh, you know, yep. daddy long legs. Except for you wouldn't call these daddy long legs right, because they're, they're very small <laughs> right. and don't have that long of legs. <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, lots of little little critters under the under the wood wood debris, and yep. that's without sifting. You know, I know right. for if you're serious about it. <laughs> getting stuff, you know, you collect a bunch of this stuff and and si- sift it and then let it, I guess, dry over time over a funnel, right? And and right. then uh, see see what comes out. Exactly. Yeah, that's one thing we're doing a lot of. Yeah, I hope we get some more of the um, little tingupa millipedes because I want to compare the DNA with um, Haynes and and Kodiak now that we have those other two samples freshly collected. So, well, those clearly don't fly and so that begs the question for them as well yeah. and they're not even coast like like on the water right i mean they could easily get washed out in a in a high water event or something like that yeah. it's like and, not and hard so, to imagine that yeah, happening yeah but then the surviving of the salt water right i know i don't it's curious and they're so small like that's a lot of distance to cover on foot <laughs> yeah oh for sure well and like with the with the beetles that are living right on the shoreline it's it's like i almost have to imagine they're they're adapted to some saltwater immersion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like at times the waves are coming up and splashing, like they, they just have to be tolerant of that. But something living in the forest, right? I wouldn't think that they'd have any ad- mm. adaptation to salt and saltwater kind mm-hmm. of things. And so then you kind of wonder like Kodiak, right? especially if they don't go north. Right. Like, uh, and, and that, that sort of, I guess they could go along the coast all the way. Cause it's similar, um, you know, that, that eco, eco, uh, uh, type, the, the, Rain, temperate rainforest right. just kind of right. goes all the way around. And I'm, I don't know the uh, full, you know, geological history, but, uh, you know, when the ice sheets were huge, the sea levels were a lot lower. Um, and I think that there were these refugia along the coast, you know, so, you know, the, the glaciers didn't completely cover the, that what we call the temperate rainforest area now. Um, so there must have been pockets that, and it's possible that some of the organisms in those pockets uh, predate the, the glaciers by a considerable extent um, and would have survived in those pockets. So. so in this case, you have Haynes, Kodiak, and there's something similar here. Whether it's the same species or different species, I guess, is yet to be determined. Part of what you're hoping to do with these is the genetic work and say how closely related. And I don't... Do, is is there a way of kind of estimating divergence time based on differences in genetic? Like, I don't know what sort of scale that might, op- presumably not 10 years, but maybe, and 10 million years, yes, but like where in the middle can... can Depends on which genetic markers you use, right? So there are genetic markers that evolve very quickly, and there are certain organisms like viruses that their DNA or RNA in, in some cases, uh, most cases, uh, change, mutate so fast that 
the percent differences is can be in the order of uh, weeks, you know, wow. hours. But the when it comes to these uh, animals, the um, sort of rule of thumb is every two uh, percent difference in mitochondrial DNA is uh, approximately a million years since they had split um, or shared shared genes in a single population. Um, and there is, that's really rule of thumb, you know, tons of exceptions, and you can't really use that in a scientific paper uh, necessarily, but the, um, uh, the, and you can't say, oh, if there, if, you know, we have, it, it, generally people think if the, DNA barcode region, which is the cytochrome oxidase gene of mitochondria, if that is um, uh, more than 2% different between two samples, then they're probably different species. Um, and that probably is like if you're a betting person, you, you, would, you would win 90% of the time um, if you made that bet. Um, but uh, once you start getting above 2%, 3%, getting up to 5, 6, 10, whatever, the probability of them being different species just increases all the more. Um, it, it doesn't quite reach 100, though. That's the interesting thing, is you can never be 100% just by looking at this one sequence of DNA, 100% certain that there's no, that they're different species. Um, there's, it, it, part of that gets into the taxonomy of, of what, how we decide things are species. Um, and there are some who might say, well, okay, we've got these things that are 12% different in their mitochondrial DNA and you're calling them one species, you know, I, I highly doubt that. And I did a little work with my carrion beetles where I actually put it to the test and had, um, I think we had a 3% difference and we then did some mating trials with specimens and um, live, live specimens and uh, most of the offspring, most of the hybrid offspring failed to make it to adulthood. Um, so they were, they were genetically mostly incompatible um so that was reassuring to me to have like a, a laboratory breeding test of this kind of theoretical idea that uh genetic differences are indicative of different species so hmm. well i could imagine with something like these millipedes where uh, long distance dispersal events are probably exceptionally rare hmm. just by the nature of things but maybe short dispersal isn't so rare that you could end up with a situation where like Kodiak and, and, um, Hi, uh, uh, Haynes might be, might as well be different worlds, mm -hmm. uh, different planets for those relatively speaking. But along the way, you know, there's this, this much less rare sort of intermediates, in, intermediates mm -hmm. that, that like they're each interact. And I guess there's a, like a ring species sort of thing if they do that around a mountain range or, uh, I guess it's a clinal sort mm -hmm. of variation yep. Yep. if they're going along, uh, in a linear fashion where each end might not be compatible at all, but they're, they're compatible all along the way the, along. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, they didn't uh, ask us how convenient it was going to be to, you know, <laughs> set up our species, uh, conceptions. But, um, so, so these kinds of things could happen, I suppose. And so you may find, in doing this genetic work that there is a difference, but without filling in the gaps, so to speak, it would be hard to know right. what sort of scenario you're in as to whether they're, they're cleanly separate or, or have intermediates along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually a matter of, uh, 
of probability. You know, people make judgment calls. Uh, taxonomists make judgment calls. They kind of put their reputation on the line and, and hope that their calls will stand up to the test of time. Well, based <laughs> on what I've seen in terms of name changes, um, it's pretty common for them not to. <laughs> and, and we get all sorts of little... Name changes. I mean, even in something as well studied as birds, uh-huh. every year there's name changes yeah. still happening, usually yeah. as a result of not new species being found, but yeah. genetic work or uh, integrated work with genetics and songs yeah. and, and these things. And Which makes it harder sometimes because they're, they're, they're splitting things more finely and it makes it harder for the, the birder with the, the binox and a camera to tell them apart because, oh, maybe you do need the DNA or maybe you need that song or whatever, Yeah. Well, that, that is definitely true in some cases. And so the, this millipede you mentioned is, is endemic so far. It, you know, I guess it wouldn't be too surprising to have it show up in coastal BC or something like right, that. Right, right. Or maybe even eastern, if, if it goes out the Aleutians or something, then eastern. Uh, would yeah. that be less likely? Yeah, I doubt it would be out there because of the, you know, it seems to be associated with rotting wood. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So and, forested kind yeah, of habitats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So I, d- I don't know what our sort of current status, we, you, you mentioned that about a thousand species a decade. It's, yeah. and, and you've been at the museum now for not quite 20 years, I guess. So right. that suggests that you've seen approaching a couple of thousand new species come in in that time. Yeah, onto uh, the list. I mean, onto not, the list, right, yeah, right, yeah. 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 Uh, some of them presumably like new species, mm-hmm. never before described. Some of them uh, species that just hadn't been reported in the state before. Exactly. And I'm guessing most of them are just hadn't been reported in the state before as opposed to new species. That's our default. That's our null hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the endemics, though, or I would guess is a fairly small fraction of, of the overall diversity oh, yeah. of insects. But, like, what kind of numbers or, or percentages or numbers, you know, roughly would we expect to have End- endemism here. Yeah, we're over 300. We're maybe up to about 350. 350 is kind of a ball, somewhere in there um, of the number of species that haven't been found outside of Alaska yet. There are some real notables. There's a, a caddisfly like we were just talking about, this cool one you found um, up the creek uh, that you took me to the other day. But um, there's a caddisfly in Juneau that lives in a sort of a similar habitat. It's just a seep next to a waterfall. And the people who described that looked around the area, other waterfalls, and um, didn't find it. Maybe it'll turn up other places with, with greater searching, but as far as we know, that's a species that's known only from this one area, <laughs> one very small area that gets like thousands of tourists a summer. <laughs> well, and was glaciated not that long ago, yeah. like covered in ice by, it was the Mendenhall Glacier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that long ago, so it's, you know... It couldn't have been there under the ice. Right. Yeah. So where did it come from? Where's its closest relative? I I don't personally know that, but I'm hoping my grad student will uh, figure some of that stuff out. But yeah, there's another one. There's a very small blind and flightless rove beetle that lives up in the Fairbanks area. That's um, in Fairbanks. Interior Alaska was never glaciated. So it was speculated that this, this rove beetle predates the latest glaciations. It's uh, not just an, a species endemic to Alaska, but a genus that's endemic to Alaska. And some people, you know, you know, how real is a genus, right? Like, is it just a matter of opinion whether something is a, a different genus or not? And yeah, maybe it is, but it's usually it usually means there's a, a much greater difference um, uh, worthy of genus status. And so the Canadians who name this thing, this little rove beetle up in Fairbanks. Um, uh, they, uh, 
they gave it a new genus name. And so the genus is endemic to Alaska. And I, I find it, and not just Alaska, but there's, it's known from three sites in the Fairbanks area. One that's actually in town, very close to one of my favorite Thai restaurants. <laughs> um, and then one a little bit north of town and one south of town and um, uh, down in Nanana. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's just like globally, you know, this is an Alaskan species, right? I mean, we, we think of Alaskan species when people think of the iconic species of Alaska, they're going to be thinking of maybe, I don't know, they saw a lot of bald eagles or they, they saw some brown bears or something. Um, but those are not unique to Alaska. They may be easier to see here than some other places, but what's unique to Alaska are a lot of these, these small arthropods that, um, call Alaska home, and this is their only home on the whole planet. I just think there's something really special about that. Yeah, it, it does uh, probably not translate as well to the postcard, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it would, be, it would be funny to put, uh, I could make a postcard of Alaskan endemics. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. The, but it is, it's interesting because, you know, obviously our political boundaries that, that make up Alaska are pretty arbitrary. I mean, there's, there's very clear... Um, landscape boundaries in terms of the, the coastline, coastline. Yeah, right. uh, but even that you know when you're talking islands like the Aleutians and not Aleutians isn't that different when right. you're going that way or or a big diomede little diomede right kind of like even the Bering Strait there you know that was eastern Siberia western yep. northwest Alaska yeah um, you know and and it's, it's this continual this coastal forest that Southeast Alaska is part of. So it's, and, and then of course the, the straight line that goes there. With the Yukon. Yukon. Yeah. There, there are like, we do have a Beringian, what we Beringian distribution beetle called the rainbow beetle in interior Alaska, Carabas feeding hophii that is a flightless large beetle. It's called rainbow because it had beautiful metallic rainbow colors on the margins of its, uh, um, wing covers, the elytra, um, and pronotum. But it, it's widespread in Asia, um, northern Asia, getting all the way to Europe and found in interior Alaska and found a little bit in um, Yukon. Uh, it gets a bit, bit out into Canada. But it's a classic example of something that probably walked over the land bridge and just hasn't dispersed south into the, south of the Alaska Range or north up into the Arctic, although Kitty Labonte here found the first kind of truly Arctic record of that thing on the on the Hall Road. Like, I guess a population is slowly moving north up into the Arctic, and she, she got a, a specimen from up there. So um, that was, uh, yeah, pretty exciting. Well, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it would be interesting to also have a sense of, and, and I'm sure it's bigger than the strictly endemic species, but like, I imagine there's some that are essentially Bering Sea endemics that occur either side of the Bering Sea, yep, yep. and uh, but not beyond that, and, right. and then things that might be in pockets from that, you know, the Fairbanks interior, but also go into the Yukon, and it's kind of that that uniced zone mm-hmm. during the last glacier, those sorts of things. Where, and I know there are definitely Pacific Northwest Coast endemic species of mm-hmm. a variety of plants and animals. Um, but they, you know, they extend BC, Alaska, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes uh, Washington and, and Oregon. There's a bumblebee actually that has, um, it was found by Jessica Ricken in Denali National Park, but there was a kind of more records from the Kluwani National okay. Park. Um, so it's kind of one of these examples of a, it's, it's the, I think it's the bumblebee in North America with the shortest known distribution. And it was kind of cryptic in that it, 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 it had remained undetected for of over a hundred years since the last bumblebee species had been described, had been kind of hiding out, being confused with another species. Um, but 
genetic and morphometric work, they were able to, uh, so that's Bombus cluonensis. They named it after the Kluani region. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's associated kind of with Alaska Range and Ringgold, St. Yeah. Elias. Yeah, and yeah. it's alpine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it is, it is fun to, to hear about all these things, and, and uh, yeah, I guess people have opportunities to contribute to the list just by getting out and observing things. It's, it's relatively accessible. You know, it's helpful to have a microscope for some of the smaller things or a, a digital camera, but with things like moths or um, larger insects, which are somewhat charismatic, depending on the person, I guess, I find them charismatic, uh, you can document those. And I've, I've found moths that hadn't been reported from Alaska before just by leaving my porch light on and, and seeing. I know there's a, a lady in um, Wrangell that, that has found quite a few there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are opportunities if people are interested in contributing to what's known about uh, Alaskan yeah. terrestrial arthropods, I guess. Or, or I guess the museum is terrestrial invertebrates generally. Or yeah, I, invertebrates? yeah, I call them non-marine arthropods is my main focus, but I do include a few earthworms and, and yeah. mollusks in the collection and such. Um, um, yeah, an eye naturalist, I mean, is a great way to report those. Um, you know, collecting is more involved, uh, more difficult, but it's also, in my opinion, worth it. It's just um, obviously uh, too much for everyone to be doing that kind of collecting work. Um but uh, the iNaturalist platform now is so great uh, because it really is scientifically um, valuable, creates this wonderful database of occurrence records. Well, and it's helpful because even if it ends up, if it ends up being something unusual and is a hobbyist, you know, novice, often you don't know. You show up there and then somebody's like, oh, that's really of interest. And then you can sometimes you can go back and refine things. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and I've done that before. Somebody wanted. Uh, somebody recently was wanted some noctuids that are pretty common here in the springtime. Orthosia uh, hibisi, which is apparently a European, and they already know the ones in California are a different species. Mm. They didn't have collections from a pier, and so they're they're sort of extending the study to say, okay, is this? And I think the suspicion is that these are going to turn out to be a different species than the European ones. They'll mm-hmm. give them a new name. Nice. The question is whether they're the same as the California ones or not. Right. But yeah, I sent, sent these, uh, just collected a few moths that showed up at my porch light and sent them off to Colorado. And Great. We'll see what happens with them. But um, yeah, any, any last thoughts that you have here before we wrap up? No, it's just been wonderful visiting Sitka. I love it. I love it. I'm glad I brought down some sunny weather with me. Yeah. <laughs> kind of lucky on that. And it's been great seeing the the local uh, sites. And I some you brought me to some places I hadn't seen before. So thanks for that. And It's great talking. Yeah. Well, and if you make it back for bug camp again, I guess it's usually generally through the Science Center. So if folks are interested in, in something like that, then uh, yeah, pay attention to the Science Center offerings. And maybe there'll be another time in in. Maybe not quite four years. I guess we had a little pandemic in there that kind mm-hmm. of. Right. Yeah. Uh, we, we might do it next year. And man, the bug campers are just so great and enthusiastic. And, and you know, one of them at, uh, donated a specimen to the museum. So uh, we're going to have four specimens, hopefully four of this one thing that's relatively rare. So I love, uh, love the kids. Nice. Well, thanks, Derek. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded earlier this month with Derek Sykes, an entomologist who's with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Museum of the North. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.